You're listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation podcast. Friday, October 26th, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation, the Taubman Center for State and Local Government, the Program on Crisis Leadership, and the Institute of Politics hosted an event with San Juan, Puerto Rico Mayor Carmen Yulene Cruz. Taubman Center Executive Director Rafael Carbonell moderated. Thank you all for being here. This is it's a real honor for me. Uh, my name is Rafael Carbonell, and I'm the Executive Director at the Taubman Center for State and Local Government here at the Kennedy School. And uh, just want to finish the shout outs because I always forget to do so at the end. Um, thank you to the IOP for hosting here. Uh, the Ash Center, of course, uh, is directly involved uh, in the program on crisis leadership. I've been very um, involved and going to have further involvements. Uh, David Giles and uh, Dutch Leonard and Arn Howitt are going to be doing some uh, case, looking at this as a case they're going to be working on. And the mayor's gracefully you're, you're looking at me as a case. <laughs> <laughs> we, can, we will never be able to cage you as a case. <laughs> so I don't believe in reading off bios, so I won't. You can Google it if you haven't already. You should. Um, remarkable uh, experience and background. Um, I think there are three things we want to try and cover here today. I have literally 100 questions. I was given 100 more. I won't be asking those because we want to get to a lot of your questions. Uh, but I, I suggest three themes you want to hit on. Um, leadership across uh, uh, the devastation that is uh, a hurricane or natural disaster and the human component of that, both in the, re- the anticipation, the recovery, um, and, and the response to that. Um, but also, the, 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 we've got our, our, the history of Puerto Rico and mainland U.S. and the future. Oh, we don't call it the mainland. Okay, let's correct me right out of the gate. Because that will mean that we're the second land. Okay, so what would you like me to call it? Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico. Okay, I'll, I'll even roll my R. <laughs> okay, so 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 what what is? But, that, but right there, it's yeah. it's it's the beginning of a political discussion. No, that's right, that's right. So what I don't want to get into is the deep history. I I want to make sure we do carve out some time for much more future looking, and, and I, uh, you're going to take us there on, on your own. But I want to make sure we get into some more specifics of what that can look like. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to start things off personally, and could you just tell us a little about your family and? your relationship with them and how they shaped you running for office? Well, I'm 55 years old. I know I don't look it. Uh, I have a daughter that will be 28 on November 30th. She was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. If you don't mind. I, I, I have a hard time speaking while I'm sitting down. So. And um, I was born, in, of course, in San Juan, Puerto Rico. I went to school at Boston University. Um, actually came here to the John F. Kennedy School in the summer between my senior year and going to Carnegie Mellon University uh, to what is now called the uh, Heinz School. It was called the School of Urban and Public Affairs. And um, I did everything you could do while in college that is legal, moral, and ethical. <laughs> it depends how you define legal, moral, and ethical, but, but that's another discussion. Uh, but but before um, I started in high school and college, my grandmother, nickname is Kilin. That's the name of a city near the Yellow Sea in China. Why do I have a name from a city in China when we're not Chinese at all? It's because she was the first one in her family to learn to read or write. And my grandfather, uh, great-grandfather, used to cut sugar cane. 
at the sugarcane plantations, which was the largest uh, industry in Puerto Rico at the time. So she learns to re read and write, and her father uh, doesn't know how to read maps. But for some reason, he liked maps. And he puts a nickname on each of his daughters and sons out of a map. So he would basically point at a place on the map. And he pointed at this city. It's called Julin. It's, uh, again, near the Yellow Sea in China. She started working, uh, getting paid one penny to read telegrams. That was her first job. And uh, she graduated from high school the same day my father graduated from grammar school. She actually owned her first pair of shoes on that graduation. And in the 1940s, when the government of Puerto Rico was giving um, scholarships, she got a scholarship and she came to NYU and she came to Columbia University. And uh, she went from being dirt poor to being the founding director of the School of Physical Therapy in Puerto Rico. Now, why was that important? Because she emphasized over and over and over and over, you have to get an education. You have to get an education. That nobody will ever be able to take that away from you. You have to, and as a woman, you have to take, get, make sure that you understand that if you have an education, nothing can be taken away from you. She, she worked at a cafeteria at night so my father could eat in that same cafeteria during the day. Uh, I'm actually um, the, the great-granddaughter of a sugarcane plantation worker. And why is that important as it has shaped my view of the world? Because you, you can't forget where you came from. The minute you start forgetting where you came from, it's just, I know you're, most of you are millennials, or so you may not know who Yogi Bear was. How many know who Yogi Bear was? So, you know, him and Boo Boo were lost for years <laughs> in the forest. And, and every chapter, he's like, you know, the, they have to steal the picnic basket because they're lost. They, they can't find their way. And finally, one day, Yogi Bear says, Boo Boo, if you don't know where you're going, You'll never get there. This is a simple cartoon. Such a wonderful lesson in life. But if you don't know where you came from, it's very difficult to know where you're going to. So I come from a very traditional background. Um, actually, a right-wing family, if that's... Put the Trump book back up. Yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm the rebel of the family, but... But um, the last thing that I, that I will say on this subject is um, telling grace in my home was an act of social consciousness because my mother didn't just say, Lord, we thank you for the food we're about to take. She would say, we thank you for the hands that planted the seeds for those that picked it, for those that put it in a box, for those that shipped it, for those that drove the railroad that took it from one place to another, for those that put it in the grocery, for those that cleaned it, for the cash shears, for everybody, and for your father, he was the primary breadwinner at home, 
that made the money so that we could buy the food. So it was instilling me over and over and over that we are but the sum of everything that everyone does around us, good or bad, and that it is within us the responsibility to ensure that others walk a path different and better than yours. This, this was a conscious effort on my parents' side. They're not the most educated people, but they have a lot of common sense, which seems to be least common of the senses nowadays. Um, I, I came to Boston University because I wanted to be in, in a world that was larger than Puerto Rico. Um, I was president of my high school's debate team and captain of the track team and president of my um, class from eighth grade till senior year in high school, all, all those years through, and, and worked in the private sector and the public sector worked in the federal government, worked in the Puerto Rican government, and then finally I decided I didn't want to be anybody's shadow. I wanted my voice to be heard, only to realize that when I got into office, it wasn't my voice that was important. It was the echoes of the thousands of voices that voted for me that were important. So in my effort to look and find my voice, I lost my voice, and I became very proudly, but the echo of thousands of voices that want to push forward a particular agenda. So I spoke to everyone that nobody wants to talk to, to the LGBT community, to the immigrant community, to the immigrants that don't have the necessary papers. I don't call anybody an illegal immigrant because that has a different connotation. To the students, to the teachers, um, to the prostitutes. And it, people would say, why would you talk to the prostitutes? Well, you know, you look at it from a public policy point of view. There are some health conditions that you have to deal with. There are crimes that you have to deal with. There is sexual exploitation that you have to deal with. So, so there, I spoke to everyone that nobody wanted to talk to and created a great big alliance uh, that ended up putting me into power I thought, but really what it did was force me to see power on a inverted pyramid. Uh, how many elected officials are there right here, right now? Future electeds. <laughs> so where, where does the power lie? It's not in me. It's within you. And the more you realize that, the more you will hold your elected officials accountable for for what you want that agenda and that path to be. You went in with some preconceived notions on leadership. You took an assumed mayorship. Here you are in San Juan. You went in anticipating what this role must be, right? And this is before the big storms hit, during and then after. Maybe just talk us through some specific examples of what you, you anticipated that role should be and what the reality actually but one of the one of the bad things about government, and there's lots of bad things about government, is that there's a lot of red tape. There's a lot of bureaucracy. Now, mind you, it may be there to ensure that the people's money get spent according to a certain set of rules, but it's very bureaucratic. So I 
I went into um, an elected official role to ensure that those that were disenfranchised got a seat at the table. It, it's a lot more difficult than you think or than I thought. Uh, because if you have 30 people in a community that say that they're the ones that uh, embody the diversity in the community, they usually want diversity, but they don't want inclusion. It's like, oh, it's okay that we're all here, Muslims and Christians and Jews and, you know, and white and black and gay and not gay. But, you know, it's, uh, when it comes time to decide, uh, let the forces and the powers to be make the same decisions than before. So you really have to, you're hitting yourself against a brick wall and making sure that you open space not only for discussion, but for decision making and for the communities to make the decisions in a democratic way, in a true democratic way, where everyone's voice is heard. And that is very difficult, because you, you really have to fight the structure of government. Uh, government structure is, is not made to listen to everybody's voices. It is made to appear to listen to everybody's voices. It is made to have a town hall meeting, and five people talk, and you all applaud, and you say, but, but if your elected officials then turn around and do whatever they want to do rather than what you ask them to do, then you haven't done much. So that, that was the one thing. Number two is party politics suck. <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm sorry to be so blunt, but um, I ran seven months before the election. I was running for to be reelected as a member of the House of Representatives. And the person that was running for mayor of San Juan that I wanted to run for had a domestic violence incident, which he later was cleared from. But he clearly had to abdicate him pursuing uh, the mayoral seat. So everybody said, let's just Everybody said, you're not going to win, you're not going to win, you're not going to win. And I said, look, sometimes the argument is more important than the outcome. Which everyone said, you're crazy. They're right. I am crazy. <laughs> but one of the things that we did is we set out to do this, to forge this great alliance. And we went to communities and, and we discussed prior to the election and said, what is it that you want in your community? We put it in writing. And we had the community members um, sign. And we had a black and white agenda for 21 different communities, which we completed 90% of. And you have to go back to the community and say, I didn't do this, I did this, I did this, I did this. So you submit to the evaluation, not on the voting booth, but an evaluation on an ongoing project of, of government. The people that started to work with me that had not been part of the campaign fought that tooth and nail. So my, my, my internal fights of saying, no, no, that's not what the voters voted for. Well, but this is better. Well, you may think it's better, but that's not what we said to them we were going to do. So we are going to do what we said to them we were going to do. And, and that inner fighting of technocrats and bureaucrats 
pretending to know better than the people in the communities what is good for them. Um, it, it, it's, it, was, it was a second thing. And, and the last thing that I would say is we live in a very cynical world where young people have this. So they don't take, can you say bullshit? Say <laughs> whatever you want. They, they, they don't take bullshit from anybody. So if you're giving me some bullshit, you just Google it and you say, but I'm sorry, but, you know, that, that's, that's not what it is. And, and, and that gives precision. But it also allows anyone that wants to tear down a concept. If you say it's 2.6 million and somebody finds out it's 2.4 million, then you're lying. Then you're lying. And, and we have this... This idea, and I, and I don't mean to personalize at all the discussion, but we have this idea about what is truth and what is fake. And every day it's redefined. Every day somebody goes out there. Uh, yeah, this morning on Fox News, they were stating that perhaps all of these 12 pipe bombs that have been distributed in the past week were... Uh, the Democrats trying to get their base um, fired up to vote on November 6th. Well, if that's proven to be true, shame on us. And if it isn't proven to be true, shame on us. Th this idea that if somebody wins by tearing somebody else down, it's democratic, it has to stop. And and we had been dealing with that in San Juan. Uh, we opened the only transgender clinic in Puerto Rico. And I was called, you know, daughter of the devil, and literally, you know, como se llama eso? El crucible. Si. Si. See, was placed all over the cars and yes, yes. So you know, I'm, I'm, and and you think, well, what am I supposed to do when a parent really, literally, brings me a 14-year-old child that has tried to commit suicide, and says, he is Chris, but he really is Chrissy. Can you help? So the idea that in government we somehow hold the beacon of truth for everybody and that the truth is the same for everybody, it's, it's also something that we constantly uh, deal with. And, and, and why do I say partisan politics suck? Because they make you feel that if you don't follow in the herd, that you're strange. And I am sure this room is full of strange people. Because if you're here, it's because you question everything. And if you're here, it's because you want <laughs> things to be different. And it doesn't matter who you are. If you want things to be different, you're going to pay a price. <laughs> and sometimes you don't like it, and some days are tougher than others. But just think, there are people in this room that are more likely to be shot just because of the color of their skin than others in this room.
right now. It doesn't matter if you went to Harvard. It doesn't matter. So you have to decide what kind of world you want now, not 10 years from now, but now. And, and that is how do we deal in government with what what is important versus what is a priority? Because government has to divide itself. It's almost like we're bipolar. Uh, on the one hand side, you have to clean up the streets and pick up the trash and, and clean up the sewers and ugh. No, it really. Ugh. And on the other hand, you have to transform society to be a better place and to be a better platform. So all those conflicting um, ideas and ways of doing things and, and ways of thinking about the future clash every single day in every single meeting, no matter if you're having it within City Hall, which actually I don't, my, I have an office in, at City Hall, but I never go there. Never go there. I have a trailer in a park. I'm a trailer park mayor, mm -hmm. and I literally have a, we have a common office, and it's, it's a common office. It's pretty much as big as this, a little smaller, but it's subdivided, <laughs> subdivided in three areas, and we all sit together, and we all work together. Why? Because if I don't manage to be in tune with the diversity, it will be very difficult for the public policies that result to be inclusive. Now, look, I'm not perfect. I make mistakes. And sometimes I want to push an agenda, and, and sometimes I get beaten back by the community. So when you ask people for something, I remember my mother, Saturday morning, what do you want, scramble eggs or fried eggs? I want fried eggs. Well, I'm making scramble. Well, what the hell did you ask me for? <laughs> <laughs> so be sure when you ask somebody for their opinion that you're going to take it. Or at least you're going to explain them why it's not in the best interest of the majority of people not to take it. You laid out those challenges. That just That's just governing in general, right? Then you throw on a couple of massive hurricanes. And a historic tidal wave. Yeah. And you're thrust in the public spotlight. You're torn in every which way. I mean, yeah. talk us through, like, you can prepare all you want for that, but you can't. And then you're in the middle of it. So you're on this side of it now. So core, core learnings on how you juggled, you're now a year out, how you juggled all that. Because there's the immediacy of the moment, mm -hmm. and then there's the long recovery. And part of that is your job is to keep it in on people's radars and on their minds. Well, you understand that. But in Puerto Rico, they don't understand that. Um, I've been heavily criticized. I was criticized when I received the... Uh, Martin Luther King Center Award for um, for leadership in time of crisis. And I'm going to jump in briefly to another question that you asked. <laughs> I, I first want to preface by saying, were governmental entities failed? the Puerto Rican people, the American people, opened their hearts. 327 AFL-CIO workers left their homes and came to tend to our wounds. Mayors from cities, uh, Mayor Philip Levine from Miami Beach, uh, former mayor, uh, 
mayor of New York, mayor of Houston, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, I, I spoke a couple of times with the mayor of Boston. They were the ones that opened their hearts, not only with words, but with actual acts of common sense and kindness. But Puerto Rico is a colony of the United States. I don't like saying it because that makes me a colonial subject. And I have lived 12 years in the States and I know the American people, hardworking people, for the most part. No, we, because we tend to want to concentrate on the exception and make it the rule. We have a saying in Spanish, una golondrina no hace verano. I don't know how to translate that. <laughs> somebody, somebody, uh, what's a golondrina? Uh, one sparrow does not make a summer. It sounds better in Spanish. Much more romantic. Much more romantic. The passion comes through. Yes, yeah. yes. And... And I know we don't like being a colony, and I know you don't like having us as a colony. It doesn't, it doesn't boast well for the most, you know, powerful democracy in the world. That in itself creates challenges for the way that the humanitarian crisis was dealt with. People often ask me, do you think it was discrimination because you're people of color? Because remember, everyone that's not Anglo-Saxon is considered a person of color. Um, and my hair is dyed anyway. <laughs> do you think it was ignorance? Do you think if, if you were a state, you would have been treated better? I have one word, Katrina. Katrina. Still, you go to New Orleans today, and they give you tours of the devastated areas. Most of those devastated areas were where African Americans lived. And it is painful. It's painful to realize that, oh my God, you know, in this place, the land of the free and the home of the brave, people can act this way. Now, I, I ask you one thing for those of you that are from the United States and those of you that are not from the United States. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men, remember women didn't count. You have to be white, above 18, and a property owner. All men are created equal. And they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. How many in this room think that only applies to U.S. citizens. You know, because this will shape the way you think about public policy. This will shape the way you think about public policy Government is not about politics. It's about lives. We make it about partisan politics. But it's about life. So when I was 
thrown into this massive chaos um, of which I think none of us have fully recovered. We, we saw things we should have not seen. Uh, we saw people literally dying of not being able to have their dialysis or they couldn't get their HIV medication or they simply gasped for air in their home because their generator was not made to withstand six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve months. And you know what? It, it is the poorest of the poor that die more. Those are the ones that die. It is the children that die more. So it is the weakest among us that die. And why? Because we are incapable of sitting at a table and finding the time to include each other on each other's problems. So when I said, bless you, when I said to the President of the United States, I am doing something that I believe I would never have to do. I am begging you, begging you. And I said it twice, and believe me, that tore my heart because I don't beg for anything. But it was evident that we were going to start dying. I said that on September 29th. And what you see behind me, when you look at that video, it's not, gracia. It's not, um, no, it's fine. It's, uh, everybody has a drug. <laughs> it's a long-lit capitalism, right? Um, it's not what, there was nothing from the federal government at that point in time. The first food that we got from FEMA, the box listed an entree as beef jerky, the little package of beef jerky. Babe Ruth, chocolate pudding, a little can of Pringles, and um, what is it, chocolate mousse or something? No, uh, um, <laughs> applesauce. But we had salt, pepper, and a fork and a knife. That's a bad snack for anybody in the United States. That's a bad snack. Now, of course, and you know what we were told when we complained? If you're hungry, you will eat anything. And then what did the world see after that? The world saw the President of the United States throwing paper towels at us. That is not, that is not what is in the hearts of the people of this country. It's not. I don't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat. We had people from both parties and from no party leave their homes to tend to our wounds to feed us, to make sure we didn't die. And they didn't see a color person. They saw people breathing or gasping for air. So, so how do we make sure that our governments all over the world, but the ones that we are endowed with the ability to somehow change, reflect the will of the people and how do we discern what the will of the people is now you you are privileged to be in an institution like this 
Well, I'm sorry to tell you that privilege comes with a burden. You have to pay it forward. And it is possible to have a very satisfying, um, financially rewarding career and have some social empathy. It is possible. They're not mutually exclusive. I went back to a little piece of paper that I have um, where most of us keep everything that is dear to us. Our underwear drawer. <laughs> now many people go to your underwear drawer, you know, so you keep things in there. Uh, My kids are always raiding it. Yeah. <laughs> Your kids are always raiding your underwear. Would you, would you care to share? Seven and five. It's just, oh, that's right. It's, they think just it's the funniest good. thing in the world. <laughs> put it on their head. <laughs> Sorry, TMI. So, so she gave me this little. She died suddenly. She she had to be intubated, and she went into a coma. She came back of a coma. This this is like out of a movie. And she wrote in a little paper, don't let them go hungry. I, I never knew what that meant. I then thought about something which I won't tell you. Here, you'll hear it this afternoon if you go to the uh, uh, call of service lecture. It is the worst sight in the world to see a child dying of thirst or hunger. And as I walked towards the, I tried, I swear to you, I tried to be politically correct. I tried to be calm, cool, and collected. I, I tried to not confront the most powerful man in the world. But it was evident that the help wasn't going to get there because they would tell us. They were telling us, oh, Mayor, all you need to do is tell your people to go into the Internet and sign up for federal assistance. Well, F-U-C-K, we had no Internet. We had no power. We couldn't sign up for anything. Anything. FEMA asked us three times, three times to give them the paperwork. Three times I gave them the paperwork. I gave it to them. And no water and no food came. Now in San Juan, because we're the largest city, we had prepared for two months. So we had enough food, enough water, enough medication, enough surgical equipment. We had um, bought enough ice. Now why do you think ice is important? Anybody? Keep medicine cold? Keep insulin cold. I am dying if you guys, anybody knows. There's got to be a way, there's got to be a way to have a small thing that, that will make sure that the insulin stays cold so people don't die from that. And they drop in front of you 
and you have to make a choice. Most of you have gone through through a moment like that. Oprah calls that the aha moment. So when I was asked again to send an email, I thought, what, the, what are you asking me for to send an email? You're not going to do anything about it. And I called my communications director and I said, get all the press that you can. All of it. Three people stopped me on the way to that press conference and said, don't do it. You're going to ruin your political career. That man is going to destroy you. He's going to put you down. He's going to belittle you. He's going to try to shut you up by any means possible. <laughs> One reporter told me not to do it. But you're going to have to make a choice. If you're really going to do this properly, whether it is your well-being that you're concerned about or is somebody else's work. Now, look, I'm not a saint, and I'm not a martyr, but I could have not lived with myself if I was silenced. So I did what I have to do, and I will do it every day if I have to, and I have paid the price. I have paid the price. But there's a price that you will not be able to ignores the price of your soul. We all want something. It's okay to want something. Mother Teresa wanted something. She wanted souls. She didn't do this just out of the goodness of her heart. She wanted souls. We all want something. So it's okay to go out there and want to change the world and have your agenda be very clear. I wanted something. I wanted the people that I live with not to die. Now, he threw paper towels at us. But why didn't we throw them back? <laughs> Figuratively, because we would have been, you know. I wasn't there when that happened because we were kept in another meeting. Which is another question, which is a larger question about government. What is it about people that gets them to take injustice over and over and over again? What is it about it? What was it about Rosa Parks that made her say, I'm fed up, I'm tired? And she wasn't tired of standing she was tired of being ignored and being pushed around. What was it about, you know, all these famous people that we talk about, but what is it about the people that we don't talk about? The kids in really, really crappy schools. What is it about all of us that either makes us look or makes us turn away? What is it? How do we ensure that the brilliance that's in this room gets exponentially thrown outside of this room. So the one thing that I had to do in that time of crisis was I had to make a choice whether I was going to be politically correct or just plain correct. And I have to tell you a lot of people in Puerto Rico thought 
that I did the wrong thing and still to this day criticize me. They say that we didn't get enough help because Julene opened her mouth. Well, frankly, I don't give a shit. People were dying. They were dying. Harvard did a study which said initially 4,645 people died. And you know what they said that day? They said that I was in cahoots with Harvard to make sure that my prediction about the deaths was true. Then the Puerto Rican government paid George Washington University $2 million to come up with 2,975. Well, if the president did not want to hear what people were telling him or see what his eyes did not see because he preferred to throw paper towels than to walk around in the most devastated areas of Puerto Rico. He should have listened to his numbers. 2,971 people asked for help in terms of funeral assistance from FEMA. 2,971. That's eerily close to that 2,975. You know how many of those were approved? 75, not 75%, 75. So there was a systematic, structured approach to ensuring that the truth and the cover-up took place. So when truth doesn't come out, there is a cover-up, and we allow it. The world allowed it in World War II. Then the world allowed it in Vietnam. Look at, look at the history. I just, I got an award, the Run Ridden Hour Award. He's the soldier that wrote to Congress about the My Lai massacre. 500 people were estimated to have been killed there. 3,000 people are estimated to have died in Puerto Rico, and we did not have to die. We did not have to die. So we were talking just very briefly about passion. Yes, politics is a passionate issue. It is personal. Every dead person is personal to me. And it is personal to you. The Muslim ban is personal to you. How they treat women and whether they continue to give us the right to take, make decisions about our own bodies is personal to women. How they treat African Americans and the fact that, you know, an African American is much more percentage-wise likely to be incarcerated for the same crime, that has to be personal. If it's not personal, get out of government. Get out of government. Go make money somewhere else. It's, it's very very good to go make money. There's nothing wrong with making money. But if you're in this business, this is a business about truth. So I had my priorities very straight. I was going to save lives, no matter what the personal cost to me. That was number one. Number two, I realized I was human. I'm very little. I have, And I've always been very little. So, in, you're too young, uh, you may know, and you may know, and you may know. 
when we went to school, there were these um, lunch boxes that were made out of metal. Yeah. Best. Right? So awesome. I, so I, awesome. And please understand, I do not uh, subscribe to violent, but they were great for hitting. <laughs> <laughs> and my grandmother told me, you never start a fight, but you always finish them. So, you know, I could come home with a black eye. Did you start the fight? No. Did you finish it? Yes. Was the other guy worse? Yes. Good. <laughs> so I did what I knew I had to do. But I, and, and we often sit, we often sit in the middle of the night and say, we slept about two hours a day. And we're fortunate enough to have three meals a day. Well, we should have slept less. We should have slept two hours a day or, or being able not to sleep at all. And we should have just needed one meal, not three. Because when we had one meal or two more, other people weren't getting theirs. And government, every decision you make, you take away from somebody, so you better be damn sure you're doing it for the right reasons. I realized I couldn't do it by myself. So because we had this vision of government, that it's a, really a place for grassroots organizations and communities to have a platform, we were able to tap into 37 community leaders. We were able to have 26 or 27 uh, soup kitchens, 27 that sprang up. We were able, I called in all of the religious leaders in San Juan. And I said, I only have one, one request. You all sit at the same table. I'm not going to have any of this that the, the Jews are not going to sit with it. No, 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 no. Or the Muslims, are the, no, no, no. We're all together here. None of them asked to be seated anywhere else. And that table was a site for sore eyes. It was a site for sore eyes. And they distributed. We, San Juan had at the time 350,000 people, which is very small compared to the dimensions in the United States. And we were able to distribute 283,000 what we call hope boxes. FEMA gives you an MRE and drops it there. And we would give people real food for every member of their family and water for a week. So because Mayor Bill de Blasio and Mayor Philip Levine came to our aid and we didn't ask them to, the people of New York helped us set up a distribution system that we didn't know we could do. They set it up for us. And we we reached out to each other. So it goes to tell you that government may think that they can reach a lot of places, but truly in a time of need, you have to hold on to all of these alliances. Now, those alliances will work a lot better if you have worked on them before. So that's why we were able to, to pull on them. And it did, look, some people 
were concerned about these alliances. They spoke against them. I don't care. My, my mind was set in a course of action that would help us save lives. And the last thing that I, that I think I learned is that courage is found in the most difficult places. When you are in a situation of life or death, and you may think, oh, well, do you know why children in urban areas in this country live in a situation of life or death every day? People that don't get access to health care are in a situation of life or death every day. People that live with HIV and cannot take proper care of themselves are in a situation of life or death. And remember how I started. We are but the sum of all the fights before us. Um, I don't know if anybody has a question, but let me finish with this. In the midst of the darkness, Operation Blessing, which is a non-governmental organization run by Evangelical Pat Robertson, knocked on my door. Now, I couldn't be. They, they asked me to be in their show, 700 Club. My mother said, you're going to wear <laughs> and um, they described me there and introduced me as Mother Teresa with a foul mouth. <laughs> they got there and they said, Mayor, we're here to help. We have these things, which I started calling them cubes of hope. I said, what the hell is that? He said, well, you know, this is a little solar panel, and you get light, and you can read it. But the best part is that if there's somebody in a community, remember, we don't have any electricity, we don't have any communications, that is in danger, they can just do this, and people can come to their aid. So I have all of these if you want them. And I said, ha, 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 <laughs> I asked him, David Dard, in a snide, you know, kind of, why do you do this? And he looked at me and said, because the Lord calls us to serve. Now, I am a person of distracted faith. never spoke anything else about religion. And they're still in Puerto Rico helping. He teamed up with a lesbian union leader in New York City, Randy Weingarten, president of the American Federation of Teachers. And they did Operation Agua. They raised more than a million dollars 
to put in the hands of Puerto Rican water filters that will make sure that the water we drank was good enough for us. So what is a fundamentalist evangelical doing, working with a lesbian union leader put together by a liberal foul-mouthed mayor of San Juan, Puerto Rico doing? They're showing us a way. There will always be a reason to divide ourselves. But I guarantee you, when it comes to life or death, Maria did not ask who we love, who we voted for. She didn't look at the color of her skin or the language that we speak. She devastated everything in her path. And you have an opportunity, truly, to change the world. It doesn't matter where you end up being, you can change the world. Damn it, change it. Change it. Make it be what we can be. So let this not be just an opportunity for you to be in a privileged environment, to share privileged ideas with privileged minds. Let this be your call to service, to go out there and save lives. The man whose name this school takes after put a challenge to the United States to say, let's put a man in the moon. Yeah, we can talk about it. He should have said, let's put a man and a woman at the moon. But, you know, it was the 60s. 283,000 miles from here, a man went to the moon. And another man in his position couldn't take water and food a thousand miles from the United States. So now I don't call it the mainland because that would make me the second land. And if I was a citizen of another country, although I respect being a citizen of the United States, I am not an American living in Puerto Rico. I am a Puerto Rican national with an American citizenship. But it's a different vision in the world. My daughter was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. She can be president of the United States. I cannot. I don't want to. <laughs> but I'll finish with this. Don't let the anger and the hate that surrounds us from all sides and spectrums of life take away the hope and the strength for you to push forward. Because they will win if they take that away from you. Maria took away about 50 million trees in Puerto Rico. We will no longer be able to hide our mistakes, our discrimination, our inequality. We will no be longer be able to hide the fact that because we don't have power over our own decisions, people die. 
So before I take any questions, I, I want to thank you all. Because it isn't me that's important, truly. It's the voices that echo in the darkness that are important. It's the caravan of people coming to the United States looking for a better place. Now we can talk about how sensible and sensitive we can be, but we cannot stop. <coughs> we cannot stop. What you can do Muslims deserve the same respect that Christians deserve. LGBTQ members deserve the same respect that non-LGBTQ members deserve. Blacks and whites deserve the same respect. But I want to thank you because when there was total darkness, the people of this country and around the world let us know our lives mattered. You have no idea how important it is to know your life matters when you're dying. So for the rest of my life, no matter where I am, I will be forever indebted to the people of this country. Because you made sure and more of us did not die. So whatever your fight is, I'm there with you. Because you fought along our side when we needed it the most. Let's not let governments divide us. And let's just let the fierce power of love continue to unite us. Take questions, right? Yeah. Who's, who's schedule are we on here? <laughs> what's yeah, our what's our what's our run what's our run? Why don't we do like two or three? Yeah. Quick questions that you can answer. We should try to get out of here by one thirty. Yeah. yeah. What time is it? It's four one seven. Oh. <laughs> if you are you game, can you, can we, I'm gonna run with that proposal. If we could do the lightning round of quick questions, quicker answers, we'll get a bunch of them in here. So. Kick us off. That quicker answer was yeah. for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, hi. Can you say can you say your name, uh, what program you're in, and where you're from? Sure. My name is Akita Dan, and I'm at the Graduate School of Because they let around 3,000 volunteers come in and out of camp there. 
Uh, my question was that you currently, how do you decide where the funding is going to or which communities that you like how do you prioritize the place? Because there are all these amazing cities like San Juan and Tomato, but they're also the smaller communities. Well, on the larger scale, that is the big issue. Right now, you, you may be hearing a lot of headlines saying $1.5 billion for Puerto Rico. The money has not gotten there. There was a big um, argument uh, in November, December, because the first response of the Trump administration was to give the Puerto Rican people $4.7 billion <coughs> in a loan. That in a loan, yeah. So so you get criticized by because you have too many loans, and then... The response to that is get another loan. Um, mo most of that, and this is the issue, $5 million is the most that a municipality can get from that loan. So 5 times 78, we have 78 municipalities. I don't know if somebody do the math. Um, that's a minuscule amount of the monies. And because Puerto Rico has been... Um, labeled a risk, risk jurisdiction, uh, uh, risk jurisdiction, we have more steps into getting the money than other jurisdictions uh, in, in the same situation. So there is, there is, there is not a plan for prioritizing that. In San Juan, we have done two things. One is we take the poorest communities, which makes sure that the communities that are more um, financially relaxed are beating me every day. Well, you know, it's a policy decision. We don't have term limits in Puerto Rico. I have a self-imposed two term limits as a mayor. I never cared much for the political discourse, partisan discourse. So I, you know, people in my party hate me and people in the other party hate me. But the people that vote don't hate me because I get elected by more and more and more every time. So, so that is a policy issue that has to be dealt with because there is no... Right now, for example, 33 municipalities got um, money from the central government to redo all of their roads. 30 belong to the same party that the governor, and three belong to uh, the other party. We have, a, unfortunately, a bipartisan uh, situation going on in, in Puerto Rico as well. So, so there is no master plan. And there is no master plan to transform. There's one to rebuild. So another hurricane will huff and puff, and, you know, 60,000 people have tarps in their homes right now, and that's about, about 240,000 people that will have to be moved into shelters. Uh, and that is a, it's a very good public policy question, which we don't seem to be able to grasp because we don't seem to be able to sit at the same table because... Some people want to serve the master and some don't. Where in, where in India are you from? My daughter's father is from Punjab. Good question back there, and then we have one up here. 
Hi, my name is Amanda, so I'm going to class from France. Um, I'm a master's in public policy student here, and I spent this whole summer um, in San Juan working for Hispanic Federation. Oh! And, yeah, um, and something though that I've been experiencing here on the, like, on the United States and on the island is talking to people, trying to explain why statehood is not going to solve colonialism, because I feel like a lot of people who don't know much about the issue associate that as a solution. And I know your stance, and, I, and I, I'm so appreciative of being so vocal about how to combat colonialism. So my question is, though, how do we more effectively explain to people who don't know much about this issue why statehood is not going to solve colonialism for us? Yeah. Um, yeah, he asked me to clarify my stance, and I, and I will. Um, which is not the stance of the party that I still am. I don't know if I'll be there. But she knows. Puerto Rico is a country. It's a small nation. So in 1898, Puerto Rico was cedido, ceded? Yes. Ceded? To um, the... This is my executive assistant. <laughs> um, she's a Harvard graduate, so yeah. and uh, it's it's. Remember when I was telling you that I I'm not. You realize you're you're human. Well, it's like you know, she's like the you know like Aaron to Moses. <laughs> Moses stuttered a lot, so he, he said, "Well, I'm sorry, I can't do it, God." And he says, "Well, I'll give you Aaron." He can talk. <laughs> That's why all he did was poke things with with uh, <laughs> with his cat, right? right? Just, uh, the the long discourses are given, but um, so so when you invade a country, you put boots on the ground, and it's part of an arrangement of a war. And then in 1917, there was a law passed that made all Puerto Ricans. Um, U.S. citizens by birth. So we have a nationality and a culture, but we have a citizenship. Some Puerto Ricans feel that they're second-class citizens because they want to be part of the United States as a state. Some Puerto Ricans feel like myself, that I don't feel like a second-class citizen. I respect my citizenship, but I'm a Puerto Rican national living in Puerto Rico with a U.S. citizenship. If you respect democracy, you have to respect its outcomes, even though sometimes you want to pull your hair at the outcome. You know, um, I, parentheses, you need to change that electoral system. <laughs> Four times already, the college, the electoral college is not the same as the uh, popular vote, right? But there are people in Puerto Rico that want Puerto Rico to be a state. There's a very minuscule part that want Puerto Rico to be independent. There's a group of people that want Puerto Rico to remain as a commonwealth, um, which provides for the situations that we've had to face right now. And there's a group of people like myself that one free association, so compact, much like what the U.S. has with the Mariana Islands or the Palau Islands, except that there were not citizens when the compact was drawn, with a dual citizenship. There's five million Puerto Ricans in the U.S., there's three million Puerto Ricans in Puerto Rico, so there's more Puerto Ricans here than there. 
um, one of the great things about Maria is that we no longer refer to the diaspora as as the you know you're no longer a New Yorkian you're a Puerto Rican now that lives in the states, uh, and, and and I think that's that's marvelous because you know who are we to say how you feel, but what I often talk about is let's talk about a a self determination process um, where all of the possible political solutions are there, and we go through a process similar to the one that the U.S. went through. Uh, you know, we we have a period of education on each one of the alternatives, and the U.S. will tell us that. Mind you, the resident commissioner of Puerto Rico has introduced a bill that's called a, an act of admission bill. That's bullshit. It's not an act of admission. It says if Congress um, approves this, it is just stating that it may positively talk about ad, about beginning the process of admission on or before 2021. Well, that's not an act of admission. So, from the from the legal perspective, President Trump has even said to the governor of Puerto Rico, who's a pro-stated governor, "Guarantee me that you'll give me two Republican senators." And uh, he said it out in the, you know, um, it, 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 it's not a civil rights issue. It's not an issue of treating in a, in a dissimilar way people of the same citizenship. It's a self-determination issue. And it is whether when you invade a country, should you give that country the ability to decide. Now, I don't agree with statehood. But if I agree with democracy and a process takes place where the people of Puerto Rico decide to become a state, then, uh, you know, you have to go for it. Because otherwise I would be a hypocrite saying that democracy only works when I get my way. And, you know, we know that isn't. But it's truly because of that, that feeling of, of being a nation and having a culture. Um, you know, at one point in time, the British did not consider India a nation. They were colonial subjects. They were a nation. So they were afforded the right to put together a process of self-determination in deciding. There were some people in India that didn't want independence. Now, we can later talk about Mombatan and how he screwed it up by Pakistan and India and all of that. Um, it's, it's, it's a matter of history. But, but the truth is that there was a process that allowed the Indian, um, at least political leadership, to move forward. I'd like to get in two more questions if we can. We have yours, and if we have another. Yes. And no men are going to ask questions. Mm -hmm. Marian Delido, born and raised in Puerto Rico, came to the U.S. around 13. Um, a, a former teacher, worked in Houston, worked in New York, um, primarily with the immigrant community coming from Central America. Then I moved to New York, and Maria happened. And so it was a different, right, different, different migration. Different, yeah, very different migration. Um, schools have never been ready for that. Schools are still not really working on ever being ready for that. Um, so it's like a two-fold question. What is Puerto Rico doing right now to like, support the students that are staying? Because I know that there's been a, a lot of 
our method and how can the working ed education policy, because that's my next step, um, better support the students coming from not just Puerto Rico but national disasters will continue happening in other Yeah, because climate change is real. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Despite what some people say. Uh, and, and, you know, we, we know that we are an island surrounded by water, lots and lots of water, ocean water. That's a direct quote of the President of the United States. We didn't know that until he said it, so we're grateful that he enlightened us. But, but there's two things. One, we're screwing it up. Education, we're screwing it up. There is a thing called the Fiscal Control Board, La Junta, that was uh, uh, put into effect by the Obama administration because we are in this uh, colonial situation. We cannot declare debt uh, bankruptcy. And uh, we had been taken away from the bankruptcy laws that would have allowed us in 1984. We could have declared bankruptcy, but we, the, we were taken off the U.S. law books, so we can't declare bankruptcy. We did our own bankruptcy law, and the U.S. Supreme Court said that because of the situation, the political subordination, we could not declare bankruptcy, and we could not uh, put forth a law that declared bankruptcy. So we're screwing it up. The Fiscal Control Board just raised from, raised from $54 a credit to $157 a credit. So we right now have 15,000 students that are on deferred tuition payment. They cannot pay their tuition. So we also have this um, influx of um, money that is coming to buy and purchase disaster economics, purchase everything in sight. And uh, so we are, are having a generation of people that are less educated that will only be able to serve those that have the money to go and buy everything in sight. Um, the University of Puerto Rico students are working very hard at that. The teachers and professors at the university are all working very hard at that. We have already closed about 500 schools between the last administration and this administration. As I opposed it when it was my party. I oppose it now. And the Fiscal Control Board now gave instructions to close another 300 schools around Puerto Rico. So when you, by, by 2020. So when you break a school or close it down, you're breaking a community. And, you know, all of the work that that school can provide in terms of social services. Uh, what can you do? Number one, of course, you're, you're in education. Understand the, the, the social um, ripping apart that goes on when a child gets ripped from a school but that they know and are placed in a school that they don't even know the language. Uh, and I think that, that uh, the... the uh, I'm trying to call, not to call you PBHA, the PHB, PBHA, uh, <laughs> with those after-school programs, after-school programs that become highly important in order for, for people to get in that immersion system, in the, in the school systems. Um, and also, just just make sure that public education is, is strengthened. There is an attack by the Secretary of Education of the United States on public education and favoring um, charter schools and vouchers. That is happening in Puerto Rico. And uh, not because of Secretary of Education, but because the governor of Puerto Rico has that same philosophy and policy. 
So, you know, it's it's an unjust thing, and we just shout it out. Somebody always listens. Somebody always listens. You, all you need is one person to listen. One. And things will change. We have one oh, here. there's a man. So we have one here, question. and you will be our last, and I have a super quick one to close this out. So one, two, three. Hello, Mayor. Uh, my name's Aisha. I am an MP um, at the public school, uh, I guess you've mentioned quite a bit about like, the limited support that you receive from the national government. Um, and I found, one thing I found really interesting was the rise of activism within like, Hispanic celebrities, specifically yes. Miranda, Chef Jose Andres. Can you... Chef Jose Andres got paid $11 million. Uh, that's amazing. <laughs> um, and so, I mean, he did a great job, yeah. but he got paid $11 million. I didn't know that Yeah. <laughs> And, and th this is what I mean when I say, while the government turned their back on us, the people, right? Um, Jorge Posada and his wife, they have a foundation. Uh, athletes for the, the Houston uh, Astros and uh, the Boston Red Sox, which will hopefully be the <laughs> world champions. Um, the Lin-Manuel, Jennifer Lopez, uh, Ricky Martin uh, has a foundation called Tao, and they, they, they're in a place called Loisa, which is where all the African slaves that, that managed to escape ended up in this town in, in Puerto Rico. Um, the, the Hispanic Federation gave us 217,000 pounds of food just to San Juan. Goya gave us 200,000 pounds of food. I mentioned Mayor Philip Levine, the mayor of New York, Boston, um, California, Houston. We had to start a foundation called Somebody Help Us because I started getting money in the mail, you know, the $1 bill or $5 or, you know, most of them had an note saying, we're sorry our president has treated you like this. Um, please do whatever you can with this. So what what that foundation is doing now is it's identifying people that have um, children initially or elderly people that need to be plugged into a respirator or um, have a severe health condition that requires them to have electricity and it's putting solar systems to run their entire homes on solar and showing people that solar is the way of the now, not the way of the future. Um, but but that, I, I got criticized because I'm saying, you know, FEMA, where are you? And Right behind me, it's all these boxes of food. Well, those of, had gotten that day, and they were from Goya. Um, uh, so, so it, it is. Remember when I said I, I, I was convinced that I was human. People trusted what I was saying because they were seeing it with their own eyes. And there's nothing more powerful against a lie than the truth. It may take a little while for the truth to shine, but it will shine. So, so the the activism that the American media and the world media played on it. So, people ask me, "Oh, well, you use your platform." Well, hell yes, <laughs> because part of my duty and my call to service was to ensure, and still is, that the Puerto Rico debacle, number one, stays 
as a part of the conversation so that the, the things get to where they're supposed to get, but also so that we learn from it. You know, what, what can we learn about FEMA and the way that we handle disasters so that it doesn't happen again? Uh, and, and I think very little of that is being done. And Back here. I'm Anita Antonio-Copete. I'm a postdoc uh, here at the Center for Astrophysics here at Harvard. Oh, um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I'm a scientist, and actually, um, as, a, as an undergrad, I went to college to MIT, um, and one of my... Uh, one of my classmates back then uh, was a student from Puerto Rico by the name of Ricardo Rosselló, who's now the governor of Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. um, so, I, I, for all these flaws, we're, we're, we're not we're not gonna blame that on MIT. <laughs> <laughs> no, for, for all these flaws, for someone like me, it's 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 interesting. It's important to see a scientist or an engineer, you know, pursuing public office because mm -hmm. I think that's a sphere that we should also be involved with and I also understand that you don't see eye to eye on many issues and I'm not from Puerto Rico, I'm from Colombia uh, so there's many things uh, internally that I don't probably don't understand but I was wondering if you could um, you know from where you stand if you could speak uh, or, or, or if you can uh, highlight some of the positive aspects of, of your political opponents within Puerto Rico and uh, within and, uh, within the humanitarian crisis none he kissed ass to the President of the United States every single time. And let me tell you something. Mm -hmm. I, I am all for fact-based public policy. Mm -hmm. But people were dying around. We didn't have to give George Washington University, which, by the way, in fact, he has ties to George Washington University. And our Secretary of Education also has ties to George Washington. Two million dollars to tell us that people were dying. We didn't have to give them. Harvard did that for $30,000, was it $50,000? That we didn't pay them. <laughs> Nobody paid them. So, so it, it is good if you use science to make things happen. It is not good if you use science as an excuse for things not to happen. Because the governor said that the, what Harvard did, Harvard, this little university, you know, that's was non-scientific. What they did was pretty much what George Washington did. It didn't take too much. I go to your house and I say, how many people lived here? Which is what Harvard did on September 18th. Three, three people. How many live here now? Two people. What happened to that one person? Oh, they went to the States. Well, what happened to that one person? Well, you know, they went to the hospital because they went into diabetic shock because they didn't have insulin because we couldn't keep the insulin refrigerated. And then they said, okay, you're, you're related to. But, but so many times, bureaucracy cannot get in the path of common sense nor science can get in the path of common sense, because there is such a thing as analysis paralysis. I can tell you about the governor of Puerto Rico that he's a good man. As a person, he's a good man. He's a loving father. He probably thought that not standing up to the president would 
get him the help that he needed. But at some point, you have to realize, shit, this isn't working. The world sees that this isn't working. And you can't use science as an excuse not to act. He did that continuously. When he went to the White House, the president said, I'll give myself a 10 out of a 10. What would you give me, governor? And the governor did this. And you can see it. To YouTube it. Well, sir, you have definitely given us everything we asked for. Well, then he didn't ask for it. That. So I, I, we all have a choice. This is what I'm saying. We're faced with an injustice. We can hide behind science and protocol, and, or we can, we can do what needs to be done to stop people from dying. You ask the governor of Puerto Rico today, and you can YouTube it, and he still says, well, that is an estimate. <laughs> but you know what? When people were asked to bring shoes of their dead ones and place them in front of the Congress in Puerto Rico, he had the gall to go look at them. So either you believe in what you're saying, or you don't. You can't have it. You can't have it both ways. You, you can't. And, 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 and I think you bring a very good point, which is fact-based public policy. Now, understand that even the numbers, 2 plus 2 is 4, but so is 3 plus 1. So it's 6 minus 2. So it's 5 minus 1. So it's 2 times 2. So make sure you understand that facts are facts, but they can be interpreted in a way that they serve the purpose. I mean, World War II, in the name of science, Jewish children have their bones broken over and over and over to see how much pain could be taken away by the development of anesthetics. In the name of God, Templars, Christian Templars, killed people. So there's always going to be an excuse or a costume to be placed when people do the wrong thing. And perhaps they think it's the right thing. But if it hurts somebody else, it isn't the wrong thing. So I think he's a good man. History knocked at his door, and he decided not to answer. And for that, he will be remembered. And not in a good way. And not in a good way. Mary, let me take us out with this one. So we understood you've got to get back. You've got to focus on the recovery. There's a lot of work to be done here. And we continue to do it. Like and, we, and, you know, and, when, when we're in the hotel at night, we're like... Ongoing, right? <laughs> ongoing. So as you look out, you've said you're giving yourself a two-term limit. What's the short list of things you're, you're thinking about beyond that? After after my term in office ends, I, I have no idea. I have no idea what I'm going to do. Can I make an ask? Yeah. Between now and then, can we get you back here? 
Yeah, sure. I'd, I'd love to. I'd love to. Actually, we were supposed to be here, right, at some point, and we couldn't. Oh, it was on the floor. Can everyone I'd, join I'd me love in, to. in thanking Mayor Cruz one more time? You've been listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovations podcast. If you'd like to learn more, please visit ash.harvard.edu or follow the Ash Center on social media at Harvard Ash. <laughs>